Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Balaguer Guitars. Founded in 2014, Balaguer Guitars strives to bring modern aesthetics and options to vintage-inspired designs. Go to balaguerguitars.com for more info. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Fishman, inspired performance technology. Fishman is dedicated to helping musicians of all styles achieve the truest sound possible wherever and whenever they plug in. Go to fishman.com for more info. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joel Wasek, and Eyal Levy. Hey everyone, welcome to the Joey Sturges Forum podcast. Welcome back, welcome back. It is Mastering Month, and we have a special guest with us, uh, Mike Kalasian. And uh, if you're not familiar with Mike, his first word um, actually was speaker, um, <laughs> which is really cool. Nice to know that. And uh, did you... Well, first of all, let me just say you you've done like the new Sayosin record uh, mm-hmm. f- for mastering. That's pretty cool. Um, against the current, moving mountains, um, and uh, I think I have a couple of other ones in here. Um, but f- first, let me just say uh, I th- I find this really cool. You and a friend built your first basement studio in junior high, and you started charging student musicians like twenty dollars a song with a like a cassette four track. Oh yeah, we we uh, well like we did it you know to record ourselves. We we actually started before that um, just with like a you know this little four track and you know we wrote terrible songs and wanted to record them. Uh, so we started <laughs> we started doing that and we would show our friends who were other musicians in school and uh, they'd be like, oh you know you gotta you gotta do this for us and we were like, okay, how about. Twenty dollars a song. You know, it was like the the Austin Powers thing. You know, a million dollars. And they were like, sure. So you know, we would just have them down to this basement. It was just you know a couple rooms that we built in uh, his unfinished basement, and we had no idea what we were doing. Uh, but that was like our first enterprising venture into recording. Man, that's amazing. That's that's actually how I got started as well. I kind of leave that little part of my story out often, but. Um, I did. I recorded joke songs for all my friends on my four track, and they would, you know, when they'd come over for a sleepover, we'd make the stupid songs. <laughs> what four track did you guys have? Because like the one that I had, I had like a Tascam uh, mini disc one. It was like eighteen hundred bucks back in the day, and I could never record more than a minute and thirty of a song before the thing would crash, and I'd have to like, you know try to piece it together we had a, a task cam it was a cassette four track and then we had this friend who had like the eight track version of it and we would like we had him in our band just because he had you know the eight track instead that of that was four a big track. deal back then yeah it was a big deal and then and then we got um sony made a mini disc eight track and and that was like the our big step up that we got you know because it was digital and it, it sounded awesome but i don't remember having any huge issues with it but i know it didn't sound it kind of like was like very mp3 sounding all the time you know no matter what you did i had the task yeah. one and they, they were like super you know data compressed but i i mean it was it was funny cuz we we had no clue i mean we we had you know no access to really any sort of education about it so i remember when we bought a book on recording and realized that we should put a kick drum microphone inside the kick drum for for rock music, and it was like our minds just blew. It was like, oh my god, that's how you do that! Holy crap! You know, we were doing stuff like plugging distortion pedals right into the the mixer, and like you know, lots of trial and error stuff. But it was fun. I've actually done that as well. I've plugged the distortion pedal directly into the four track uh, cassette tape four track, and just that's amazing. And then been like, why does the guitar sound like? 
Harry. <laughs> Garbage. Yeah, let me EQ it a little bit. Okay, I guess that's cool. <laughs> hey, I remember in eighth grade when I really first started playing guitar and getting into music when I was listening to, um, it, I think it was like a Green Day song, and I couldn't figure out how the guitar could solo over a guitar riff. I'm like, man, he's playing two parts at once. <laughs> yeah, really yeah, how good. do they do that? Yeah, there's only one guitar player in the band. I'm trying to think. There was this one, um, this band, No Use for a Name, and they came out with the uh, this album, More Betterness. I'm trying to think of what year that was. Uh, maybe I could look it up here real quick. Uh, no Use for a Name, More Betterness, 99. Okay, so that was the, one of the albums that came out, and we were like, we need to figure out how to do this. <laughs> at, at, at all costs, how to? And I go back and I listen to it. And I still love that record, but uh, it doesn't sound nearly as good as I remember it sounding back in the day. Well, one thing that I think is cool about this, about your start, and and similar to our start, is I think this puts you in a position to have sort of a unique perspective on audio as you go throughout your career. And I'm just wondering, you know, how do you think that's played into your strengths and what makes you creative um, when you work with people? Well, I think that the even even more than, you know, starting like that was, you know, for years, really until like two years ago, I was producing and mixing and, you know, I've edited and quantized more drum tracks than I could possibly count, you know what I mean? And, and done reamping and everything. So like, <laughs> I appreciate it, you know? And, uh, not to say that other mastering engineers don't, but when somebody sends me something to master, it's like I can imagine how much I know how much work it, it was, you know, and I get it for like an afternoon, and uh, that's serious, you know. I don't want to mess yeah. it up, and it's I, ha I have to really respect the amount of work and the amount of effort that went into it, and I can hear it too, which I think is pretty cool. You know, I'll listen to stuff and I'll be like, wow, you know, I I, I appreciate how good this guy's drums sound or this guy's guitar sound because I spent 15 years trying to make my drums sound like this, you know, and um, I, and, and also I, I feel like I can kind of hear the direction that they want, you know what I mean? I can put myself in, in their space and, and almost envision how they want it to wind up. And, and use that as kind of a, a jumping off point. Yeah. Now, taking the the work, the amount of work that went into it into consideration, um, I feel like is so important for a mastering engineer because really you are the, you know, the final coat of paint, you know, so to speak, yeah, or the, fi yeah, the final absolutely. spice on the top of the food that just really makes it pop. And uh, I, I'd want a younger generation of audio professionals coming up now to really respect that process and to not get so caught up in the, you know, what plugin do I put on my, you know, on my master out and how do I set it? Like, yeah. you know, take, take it a little bit more seriously. It is an art. Um, I think it's a delicate art, uh, and it takes a lot of finesse to get it right. And I just want to say, are you in the box or out of the box when you, when you master? Uh, I am mostly out of the box with analog gear, but I, I definitely use a combination, you know, okay. There, there are plugins that that don't that do things that I could never do with the hardware, and then there's hardware that you know just has a little bit of a something extra that plugins for me don't don't have. You know, certain ones. I'm with you on that. So, to a generation of people who are coming up pretty much in the box um, exclusively, what could you say to them to really convince them about this? I guess this magic that analog can impart on a on a mastering project. Well, I think it's I think if you have a really great mastering engineer work on your stuff, you know, if you do a mix and then you know you do your own master, or you have somebody master it in the box, they can definitely do a great job. But if you send it to somebody who's who's also excellent and they have analog gear and they do something that really takes advantage of what that analog gear can do for your music, you'll hear it. 
You know, I, I I was in the box forever just because I really couldn't afford stuff. I mean, mostly when I was recording, but over time I would I would get a piece of gear and I would listen to it and I would compare it back and forth. And I, I never took for granted that it was this is analog gear, so it must be better. I was always really critical. You know, does this EQ, even though I spent four thousand dollars on it, does it sound better than my favorite plug-in EQ? And the answer wasn't always yes, but sometimes yeah. the answer is holy shit yes. You know, I think it's very important to be in inquisitive about products really and and even processes like even if someone can show you an example of a great process or or a great product like look see how look how this makes something sound isn't that so much better that's awesome and everything but i still think that one of the most important fundamental elements of of being in this industry is just being like you know inquisitive and curious and willing to take that ability to like experiment and take take that to an extremely important place um i feel like a lot of guys get too comfortable absolutely i mean i i try to spend you know if i have a little bit of downtime which isn't as frequent as it used to be especially you know i have kids now and everything but if i have a day that's not booked i'm i'm here and i'm gonna pull up a mix and i'm gonna eq it with four different eqs you know two are plugins and two are regular eqs and say you know which really sounds better if I forget what I'm using or what, you know, with limiting and clipping and driving different pieces of equipment, do 10 different versions of, of a verse and a chorus of a song and, and really listen. And I think that experimentation is, is huge for any, uh, you know, aspect of recording, you know, whether it's mixing or, or tracking or mastering, uh, just trying different things and, and really being critical of it and not just saying, well, this is an analog EQ, so it sounds better, or this is a plug-in, so it's going to be more precise. Just try everything and then forget your pretenses and listen, you know? Yeah, that's great. I think that's where a lot of uniqueness comes in when it comes into like developing a style, because ultimately, as you get good at this, whatever you do, mixing, producing, mastering, you know, you're going to have a sound Sure. Yeah. and people are going to seek you out for that sound. But the problem is, you know, it takes a while to develop that sound. And it's those experiments and just sitting down and trying something and plugging something in that may not seem right or just not being afraid to experiment. And because sometimes you make totally. mistakes and it's those mistakes that all of a sudden make your eyes pop out and you're holy shit, you know, and then it becomes a habit. And once it becomes a habit, it, it imparts itself. Into yeah. And, and I think that also, you know, I'll see what gear guys are using, you know, guys whose work I really respect. And then I'll try that gear. And it's like, well, this doesn't work for me at all. I don't know why, you know, for whatever reason. And that's been a big thing with the, with the analog gear, sw- swapping out different pieces, figuring out what really works for me and my sound. I, I hope to get to the point where it's like, okay, I'm done, you know, for a while. This is my chain. I really like it. I have options for kind of whatever gets thrown at me. I'm not quite there yet. But I'm getting there. It's a never ending. The gear lust is. Yeah, it is never ending. I hope it slows down a little bit, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hear you. I, I've been taking some time off buying gear myself, and uh, every time I sit down and see a catalog, I just write back into it, and I'm like, oh, I want to buy this and this and this and add this and this and that. And yeah, they keep coming out with all this cool new stuff. You know, it's hard to it's hard to resist. Oh, um, man. A barefoot sound, you know, the monitoring company, they just came out with an add-on for their big speaker. It's like a, it's like a mastering tower. I think it's, it's almost $50,000, but it's plus or minus one dB flat from 18 Hertz to 40 K one dB. I think it is. 
It's crazy. That's yeah, ridiculous. It's very crazy. I kind of want to hear it. No, yeah, I want. It's the same thing. It's like I, I want to hear what this sounds like. What what can I sell? You know, like <laughs> can I sell like a kidney or something to get this? And it's like it's like no. You know what? It's fine. I'm fine. I don't need this. You know, I have to like slap myself every now and then. So we have a lot of people here that really just can't afford a mastery engineer, and not you know that they're not necessarily working on things that would have. A budget for that. Maybe they're just doing some stuff for themselves as well. You know, we have some guys who, who write their own music and record it themselves. Some of the stuff that we talk about in terms of like how to master your own music, oftentimes requires you know at least a thousand bucks or more of plugins or gear or something. Do you have any tips for a quick ways and effective ways for those kind of guys to really get? get the job done um, and have it, you know, not completely demolish their work. Well, are these guys mostly mastering their own stuff or are they, they taking on other jobs? I feel like a majority of them are, are working on their own work. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that if that's the case, then the best thing that they can do is just work on their mixing. You know what I mean? The more, it, it's like a give or take, the better they get at that the less they're going to have to really worry about the, the mastering end. You know, I, I still, I get mixes from people and it's not all the time, but you always hear the story about the mastering engineer getting the mix where it's like, okay, I'm just going to turn it up a little bit and I'm going to trim the top and tail and then I'm going to, you know, send it back and then it's done. So there is potential to, to mix it so well that you really don't need to fix any problems and then you can kind of just give it a little bit of level and you're good. I, if I were working on my own stuff and when I did master my own projects, my mastering chain usually consisted of like a two bus compressor and then, you know, whatever limiter I was going to use. And then anything else I heard, I would go back to the mix and correct it there. But I, I think that uh, aside from that, the biggest bang for the buck thing that people can do, probably the thing I see neglected the most, is monitoring and your room. That was the big deal for me. Uh, getting all the analog gear was nice, but when I really started to pay attention to what my space was like and, and the speakers that I had and, and the reflections in my room and all that stuff, then it just became really clear what I had to do to make something sound better. And the tool that I used was kind of just the icing on the cake, you know? So Mike, if you were going to give a person who's starting out, say they want to improve their room or, uh, you know, get a better listening environment, maybe not spend any more money, what would you recommend that they do? Where do they start with? Where do they get their bang of the buck? To tag onto that, um, I know that all these things are important, absorption, diffusion, etc. But what do you think is probably the most important to a typical space? Geez, if I had to make an educated guess, which is really all I can do, you know, I'm not too much of an acoustician, but I think that it's probably the low end in spaces. Uh, I think that spaces are just generally too reflective. I know that when I was, you know, starting out building my space and kind of, you know, or uh, my previous space and getting it better. One of the things I did is I went to Lowe's and I just bought, um, they have this insulation and it's made from like recycled blue jeans. You know, it's not, it's not a uh, fiberglass or anything. So it was pretty safe. And I just built these boxes, just, you know, big base traps. And it was super inexpensive. I mean, I think for like a hundred dollars, I built like five or six of them. And I kind of like put them in different positions around my room. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the whole mirror trick for, for finding first reflection points. I know about it, but I would love yes. for you to, to describe this to our users. Sure. So basically what it is, is if you, if you set your speakers up and, and I guess initially you should try to get as much symmetry as you can in your listening space. Um, so if, if the sound is going to, it's going to bounce off the walls, the floor, 
and the ceiling above you. So if you kind of look at the wall to your left and you look at the wall to your right and there's a wall immediately on your right and then on the left is a hallway that goes down 40 feet, you're, you're going to have you know, this reflection off the right wall into your ear and there's, and then you're not going to get it so much or it's going to be much later from the left-hand side. And that's going to kind of throw your stereo image off. And then also your, your brain does this kind of thing where if a sound, you guys know about the Haas effect where it's like if a sound is less than like, it's like 15 milliseconds yes. or something like that. You don't really perceive it as a delay. It's kind of just, your brain combines these sounds. And if certain things are out of phase because of the timing with reflections, you'll actually get like, you know, changes in the frequency response that you're hearing uh, because of it. So, so getting symmetry is, is a way to f- even that out a little bit. The other thing with the mirror is if you're sitting in your listening position and, you know, you have your speakers in front of you and you have a friend holding a mirror against the walls around your room, anywhere that you can look into that mirror and see one of your speakers is a spot that the speaker is going to reflect off into your ear. So that's kind of your primary location that you want to put uh, absorption. You know, there's usually two kind of like if you just point to the, you know, stretch your arms out directly to the side, and then there's usually two a little bit behind that, and then there's one above you, uh, which is why a lot of people have clouds. Yeah, and a, a lot of people ignore that space, and I think that space is very important. I've heard the, the difference between clouds before. Sure, yeah, yeah. In my, spa- my space now, if I took the cloud out, I, it would completely throw everything off. I mean, I would have no idea what I was hearing. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about speakers. And I know, you know, this is probably one of the the biggest areas where these guys just don't have good stuff. And I, I talk to a lot of people, you know, we're, we're always in the forums and in the chat rooms and stuff. And, uh, you know, people are like, where can I get a good set of speakers for 400 bucks? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. I don't think, I don't think you can. Um, <laughs> so, but let's just assume, you know, we've, we've got a decent budget. Well, where's a good starting point? Well, what do you, what do you, uh, specifically, what would you say at, Budget-wise, you know, like a thousand dollars, five thousand dollars, five hundred dollars. Let's say one, between one and five k. Okay. Um, actually, that's pretty cool because that's roughly what I wound up spending on my speakers. I before this, I had you know studio monitors, and I had uh, Genelex, which I really liked. I had Dynaudios, which I actually didn't love, and then I wound up with these speakers called Event Opals which were pretty wild speakers, and they sounded really, really good for like a small speaker. I think that they were about $3,500 for a pair, uh, and they just sounded huge for a, for a near field. Um, but when I switched over to mastering, I bought B&W Nautilus 802s, and I got them for just about $5,000 used in excellent condition. And granted, they're like a 15-year-old speaker, but um, to me, they, they sound awesome. You know, they, they're so much more pronounced in, in the mid-range. They're three-way, which was like, uh, you know, most studio monitors are two-way. And hearing that three-way kind of dedicated mid-range was also kind of an epiphany to me. It was like, wow, that's where everything is. That's where the vocal is. That's where piano is. That's where guitar is. And, and now I've got this speaker dedicated to it. You know, when you listen to like a solo guitar, it almost feels like that's the guitar speaker, you know? That's the speaker of the amp right in your room. It's super interesting. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, it is cool. Um, so I would I would definitely, if somebody really wants to get into mastering, I, I would look into the used market for sure and try to get something that's, you know, pretty full range. But, but I think that, 
you know, for someone who's mastering their own mixes or someone who's kind of doing it more on like a, a, a personal level, you can definitely get away with having studio monitors. I mean, I, I did it for a long time. I think that the real thing is, you know, getting the room dialed right so you're hearing, you know, what you're supposed to hear out of them. Absolutely. So speaking a little bit on to back onto your career and, and how you work, uh, just curious because we have some questions to follow this up. How many masters um, do you actually do per year? I think last year it was over 350 projects. I don't know the exact breakdown, but if I had to guess, it would probably be about 100 or 150 records and then a handful of EPs and then heaps of singles. Wow. So that's that's up there and the the song count the song counts up there oh yeah it's been it's been a it's crazy thing and i I think and this was actually 2015 was my first year as like just a mastering engineer and i think fortunately i i made enough connections and made friends with enough people during you know the 10 years of recording and playing music that i was able to just kind of call a bunch of people and say hey i'm doing mastering now send me some stuff for test masters you know and was able to get the work coming in that way that is a good i want to highlight that because uh that is a good way to win over customers. Um, I've done that. I've done that. I've been like, hey, I'll master one song for free. And if you like it, I'll, you know, you can hire me for the whole album. Sure. I think it's huge. I mean, it's something that I could never really, I mean, you can do it with mixing, but it's a pretty big commitment time-wise. And then obviously with production, it's an even bigger commitment. But with mastering, I mean, you know, you can get a song done in 45 minutes. So if you, if you like the artist and you believe in your, you know, ability, then why not? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, here's a kind of a fun one. So, how many masters do you think it's possible to do in a single day? I've done 29 songs in a day. That's the most that I've ever done. Uh, I think the important thing here too with this question is how how many do you think you can handle before your judgment starts to get cloudy? Sure. So the reason why I was able to do the 29, aside from I absolutely had to, that was the main reason. But uh, there, (laughs) it was like two albums. An EP, and then a, and then like, I think it was maybe two, maybe it was three albums, and two of the albums were incredibly consistent, which is is so nice. I mean, when you get an album and it's just done, and I think one of them was done by an engineer who I know very well, and I know that his mixes are just like painstakingly consistent from one song to the next. So it was nice. I kind of mastered the first song, and then I would just listen to the next song, make sure it was cool, print it, next song, you know? So uh, if that hadn't been the case, and if I had to, let's say I got singles and every song was completely different, uh, I don't think I could do maybe more than 10 in a day before I was shot. Yeah, I found, like, it depends on the genre uh, in some cases, because I feel like in some of the metal records, the approach to the tones and the mix is a little bit more static than dynamic. Sure. And and that can carry over into the mastering as well. It doesn't really require a lot of unique tweaks from song to song. But I look at your discography and I see a, a whole world of, of music that's nothing like that. So I imagine that uh, you do have to put quite a bit of time into each one. And I think that's something that... Uh, that the audience might not quite understand because uh, they they often work on the heavier style of music. And so there's this whole world of, you know, actual dynamics in music. And uh, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> so uh, what was, uh, this leads me to the next question. What's one thing you would change about mastering trends today um, aside from the whole loudness war? What would I change about it beside the whole loudness thing? I, I would... Uh, 
I mean, do you feel like a lot of stuff is going too bright? Are we are we doing weird things with the low end? Like, what what's a common trend you hear in mastering that just really pisses you off? Let's see. That's a really good question. Um, one thing that pisses me off, and this is maybe not the answer that you're looking for, is that I... Well, Lander, that's one. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Oh my gosh, yeah. And, and <laughs> speaking of which, I think that they... They said whether or not they did a study, I can't. I, I can't say. But they said that like ninety five percent of music that's released is like unmastered, uh, and I guess that, that's if you take into account like everybody on SoundCloud and all these you know kind of peer to peer platforms. I w- I would change that. I w- I would educate people about uh, good good mastering, but I would also if there's one thing that I would change, and it's not so much about the mixes I get, but I would make it a little bit more clear what the standards are for the different distribution mediums. Um, like I listened to, you guys had Bob Katz on, who's a brilliant guy, and he was talking about the levels on YouTube and the levels on iTunes and Spotify and, and how they're a little bit different on YouTube from the rest of them. That's something that I really feel like could be ironed out and also just made more clear. I mean, there's no real solid information about what's what and, you know, like with Spotify, there is a... Uh, you know, loudness normalization thing, but and it's on by default. In iTunes, I don't think it's on by default, but it's on on the iTunes radio, and it's, you know what I mean? It's you, it's kind of hard to tell exactly what audience you're playing for when you're mastering, um, and that's something that I wish was a, a little bit more cohesive. Well, here's my issue with it. I, I believe that the mastering engineer is starting to lose control of, of his work because it's getting represented in so many different ways. Now you work with someone like, uh, I would imagine if you work with Bob Katz, you're going to get, you know, maybe 10 different versions of your record back. You're going to get one that's intended for YouTube normalization, one that's intended for Spotify normalization, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Something that's friendly with soundcheck, something that's mastered specifically for iTunes. Sure. The issue though, is that that is not an easy or simple process yet, especially for, you know, I'm I'm not a full-time mastering engineer. Uh, I do master a lot. I master my own work and I master other projects that aren't my, my productions. And I'm still unclear on how to really go through that process. And, but then you talk to someone like Bob Katz and he does a, a separate MP3 master just because he can have control over the bends and stuff like that, which is insane. Sure, yeah, yeah. And I, I do a certain degree of that stuff. I mean, I'll do a you know, master for iTunes and a, a vinyl pre-master. Um, and I think with the, like you were saying with Spotify and YouTube, you, you have to really read up and know what their standard is to kind of be able to be you know, master for it effectively. But then it gets kind of scary because with Spotify, so you have this loudness normalization. I think it's negative 16 uh, LUFS. And if you master for for a rock record that low, I mean, it's quiet. Uh, So what happens if somebody has their, the normalization turned off? Because you can, then you're kind of sunk. You know, your record is like 8 dB lower than everybody else's. (laughs) That's so, the, yeah. so do you want to take that gamble? I mean, you know, it, it. I feel like it should either be on or off, so you know exactly what you're going for. And then, e- even so, um, actually, just yesterday, the band Let Live uh, that Dan Corneff worked with posted a, a video of their song, and I was listening to it, and I was like, "Wow, this sounds incredible!" Is mastered by Ted Jensen, and. I went and I listened to some songs of Dan's that I had mastered that were videos up on YouTube, and they were like, 
you know, 4 dB or 5 dB quieter. And I was like, well, you know, I don't, I don't think that my master was that much quieter. So then I went and listened to the WAV files, and in fact, they weren't. Uh, and it turns out, or my most uh, educated guess is that it has something to do with how the video is handled, or the, the audio is handled when it's put into the video to be put up on YouTube. Yeah, uh, I just had something mastered by Ted about two weeks ago. And, um, you know, he didn't, ma- he mastered pretty loud. I mean, it was a little bit quieter than I do, but it's definitely not like. Sure. Yeah. It, it, I mean, you would have thought by listening to these videos that it was in like a whole nother like galaxy, but that wasn't the case. Um, it's just another case of like, you know, I, I did the best work I could, but then it kind of got lost in translation when it went to somebody else who was a video guy and, you know, but that's how it gets delivered to the public. So, and that's, that's the, some of what the, I'm talking about, what we're losing control. If you're really not plugged into every little part of the process, that, that kind of stuff happens. You've got video guys who don't know anything about audio and they've got the track turned down or, or something. I don't know what goes on. I don't know if they've got finalizer plugins on there. <laughs> I've, I've definitely had my fair share of work be represented in, in a weird way. I've had uh, music videos that are in mono. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the mono upload I've gotten that a couple worst. times, too. I've gotten SoundClouds in mono, too, or, or a Bandcamp or something like that. But my, my, next, uh, my next move was to email this guy who made the Let Live video and say, hey, man, this sounds unbelievable. Can you give me, like, a crash course on how to make sure that this sounds good so I can just, like, give this to other people, you know, making videos of my masters. So that's going to be something that I'm going to kind of pay a little bit more attention to, you know, see it through even after it leaves my hands to make sure that it sounds great. Yeah. And in this generation that we're in now where, you know, video is so important to the, to, especially to the music world, but really to any business, what is it, you know, what is that? What is that trick? I mean, do you know the answer now? Have, have, no. Did you find out? Okay, no, he, so. he, he linked me to, um, he wrote me back, he linked me to an article. It was like an Apple forum article that I haven't had a chance to read. And then he told me to to uh, give him a ring later on, which I, I plan to do. Uh, so I'll, I'll happily share that information with you guys. But it's, maybe we, yeah, maybe we can follow up and put it on our website or something. And I do think that understanding this new process of consuming music and and how you have to navigate it with your, uh, you know, with how you actually master stuff and how you mix things is so important because it's not going to go anywhere. And the record sales these days are just so telling of of how important streaming is going to be in the next few years. Um, And now you have to educate the client too about how to upload his files correctly so he doesn't... Oh, yeah. 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 You you know, you get like, you get like a... You have them uploading MP3s to sites that are going to re-encode it anyway, you know. So you, you kind of have to just be, you know, a master of all this delivery medium and and use that to to educate your clients because ultimately they're going to be the ones to, doing the upload. You know, it's kind of out of your hands at the very end. All right, so um, we're going to switch gears here, talk a little bit about some gear, and then take some questions from the audience. Um, first question. I've got for you is what is your favorite piece of processing gear in your arsenal? This has to be outboard. Okay. Uh, I'm staring at them right now. I I think that my favorite piece is, uh, it's, it's called a Hendy amps, Michelangelo, and it's made by this guy, Chris Henderson in Texas. And he's 
crazy in the best possible way. He makes so many of these things. Um, and, and I thought that he must have like, you know, three or four people helping him out, but it's just him last I checked. And he just churns these things out. He also makes guitar amps that sound awesome. But it's basically a 2BQ, a stereo 2BQ ganged. So, you know, one set of controls. And it's got low, mid, high, and air. And that's it. It's got an aggression knob, which is kind of like a tube drive. And it's it's like the least clinical EQ I've ever heard in the analog domain. Like if you flip it in, it's you know it'll boost certain frequencies, probably a dB, just by having it turned on. It it makes the you know the if you ran a sweep through it, it would look like the ocean. You know, it's it's not flat at all, <laughs> but it sounds so good. There's just something about it, and and I probably. I would say 99% of masters, even if I'm not EQing anything, I have it in the circuit just because it sounds so awesome. That's sick. It's one of those pieces. Yeah, it's one of those. I, you know, to be, And to be honest with you, I try to, to make all of my analog gear those types of pieces because to me, if they don't have that magic, then I shouldn't be using them. I should just be using a plug-in. It's so much easier to recall and cleaner. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I mean, I do that all the time when I master songs too. Sometimes just running something through you know, a good transformer, you know, a good op amp or something, you know, it really just adds that certain amount of, you know, sure, sauce yeah. that you're just not going to get with a plug-in. Yeah, yeah. You've got that uh, Shadow Hills compressor, right? Yes, sir. I love that thing. And the three transformer options on it are really cool because you can use them yeah. tonally. You know, if the mix is lacking bottom and it needs a little bit of extra distortion, you can pop on steel. If you want it to glue more, you throw on iron. If you want an extended top, you can flip up to uh, nickel. Yeah, nickel. that's awesome. So it's Really good sounding uh, piece of gear. Expensive, but I love it. Sure, I, I've never used it, but I, I used to use their mic pre all the time, which also had the you know transformer options, and I thought that that was very cool. And it it just looks. I would probably pay the you know the price for it just because of how awesome it looks, even if it didn't sound good. <laughs> yeah, let's be honest. That's definitely a waiting factor. Like the first time I saw it, and I have like the all class A one with the red lights. I'm like, that is like the most evil looking yeah. thing I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. have it. It's a no brainer. I'll, I'll sell my leg <laughs> if I have to. You might, you might have to, if they come out with another one, it's pretty much how much they cost. <laughs> so what do you do to get your signal so clean when you're outside of the digital realm? Um, is that something that you focus on? Is there a special cable, uh, <clears throat> some kind of routing thing? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple things that I do that I, I think go against some conventional wisdom, but I've kind of read some articles and listened to some things, and it, it makes sense to me, uh, for better or for worse. But you know, a lot of people will send out to their analog chain at you know negative eighteen or zero VU. You know, they'll kind of because you know the the old saying is that's what analog gear wants to hear, which is probably true. But in my head, if you're not sending out as close to zero dB full scale on your converter then you're not getting the full benefit of the dynamic range of that conversion stage. So what I do is I will normalize the unmastered tracks in my DAW to like negative 1 dB or negative 0.5. And then the first thing I'll do after they come out into the analog stage is passively attenuate them. Uh, down to a level that my analog gear wants to hear, which can be a little bit louder if I want to drive it, you know, or it can be softer if I want to clean. But the point is, is that I'm doing my digital to analog conversion using the full scale of the you know converter uh, and getting the the most headroom kind of out of it and then I guess 
Aside from that, I mean, I use all Mogami cables, which I feel are, are, are pretty quiet, but I never really had cable noise issues. I think the other part of it is just about gain staging. You know what I mean? If you if you have a su- if you have a yeah, super definitely. quiet signal and then you're cranking it up somewhere along the line, you're you're gonna get noise. But if you kind of keep that signal healthy uh, throughout your chain, you know, and it's e- it's nice if you can just bypass each piece of gear and kind of see where you're at without that gear changing the gain. Uh, if you keep everything in a in a good spot throughout your chain, you know, and you have good gear. Uh, you should be in pretty good shape. Now, what about electricity? Because I feel like this is often overlooked, and a lot of spots just don't have good electrical wiring, and and there's all kinds of issues there. Um, first of all, how seriously do you take that, and what are some of the maybe some of the challenges that you faced, and how how did they get solved? Well, fortunately, I, I've had problems with that in the past, and it certainly is the case. I mean, when you're when you're dealing with you know such fractional adjustments and and you know fading down to to you know, essentially the noise floor of your equipment. If you have electrical noise, you can hear it. I use these um, big monster cable, monster power conditioners that have the noise filtering in them. Yeah. And uh, that definitely seems to make a difference. I've never tried my current rig without it, but I do know that, especially when I was, was like tracking guitars or reamping, plugging into one of those versus plugging into the wall was night and day. You know, it was like something would be unusable plugged into the wall. And then when I would plug into this, it was like dead quiet. Uh, so I kind of swear by these things and, and using them to kind of keep my gear quiet. Uh, other than that, I'm fortunate that the, the space we're in is like a, an industrial building and the, the power is probably overbuilt. And we had all the lines run, you know, just for us. So they're all new and they're all clean. That's amazing. Yeah, that's really important. Like when I did my studio build, it cost me to do one room. Well, I also had to upgrade the thing, but it was like five or $6,000 just to wire the room correctly and have it done in a way that it wasn't going to be an issue. And my power in this room is yeah, that's great. So it's it's expensive, but you got to do it right. Is your is your, is your your studio in your home? Uh, no, I rent a commercial building uh, like about a mile. Oh, from cool. Yeah, house. that's that. I'm, I'm like three miles away from, from my house but you got it when you have kids <laughs> yeah well well here's the thing so when i was recording bands and and i had bands because uh, I, I at one point had my studio where i lived and my wife who was then my girlfriend was like you know what this is not this is not working out like you can't have bands in here all the time and i agree you know she was like this is a little much we live here so i moved out and i um got you know the space that we have now but i was recording still so now that i'm mastering i really kind of need just this one room. So my dream is like to build a room in my house and just, you know, kind of walk around in my underwear all day because I don't have to leave home. (laughs) That's, uh, that's my reality. So I can promise you that it's amazing. I Um, can't wait. (laughs) Okay. We're going to take a couple questions from the audience here. And once again, you know, thanks for sharing your time and your, uh, your words of wisdom with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Definitely. So, um, let's see here. We've got a question from Lucas. He's asking, how do you approach EQ when you master? I think that the best time to EQ a song is right after you hear it for the first time. Uh, I've kind of always thought that like the mastering engineer is the guy who gets paid to have the best knee-jerk reaction to anything he listens to. You know, that that's kind of what it is. It's like if you if you're sending your mix to a mastering engineer, it's usually because you're so inside it, you can't really step back and, and see the overall picture. So even as a mastering engineer, I think it's easy to get sucked in to the point where you don't really know what you're hearing anymore. And the best time for you to make that objective decision on how to EQ something is right 
when you hear it at first. So usually what I'll do is if I'm going to master, let's say I'm going to master a metal record, I'll find the best sounding metal record that I possibly can and listen to it for like 10 minutes before I even touch the stuff I'm mastering or listen to like a playlist of a couple songs that I think sound really great. Actually, occasionally I'll even listen to something that's completely different. Like uh, yesterday I was mastering an acoustic record and I was listening to like rock records as a reference. And I don't know why it was just working for me, but I'll just get myself into a space where I'm, I'm listening to something that I think sounds really great and it's inspiring to me. And then boom, I flip over to what I'm working on. And as soon as I do that, it becomes very apparent what I have to do to EQ. You know, it's like, wow, this is too dark. Wow, this is too bright. Whereas if you just walk in in the morning and put on the first thing that you, you're going to work on, you really don't always have as clear of a basis to judge it uh, upon. So I think that that's my approach is to is to just kind of do it, you know, get the 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 overall EQ stuff out of the way as soon as I can while it's still fresh in my head, and and then I kind of go back and do the um, the the fixing, you know, if there's like a resonance here or if this is built up, that kind of stuff is more obvious. But I think that the overall balance of something is so much more apparent the second you flip it on. Absolutely. This question comes from Giovanni. What's your favorite record that you didn't work on but you wanted to? And what pieces of gear do you prefer using analog over digital? Can you describe your process when you start mastering something for the first time? I'd say uh, just to be short on time, because you did talk a little bit about analog and digital gear. Let's answer the first one, which is what is your favorite record that you didn't work on but wanted to? And the second part which is, can you describe your process when you start mastering something for the first time? Sure. Uh, my favorite record that I didn't work on, uh, can it be a Beatles record? <laughs> or a radio, <laughs> or a, any Radiohead record? Uh, it can be anything you want. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if I could have worked on any record in, in the history of making records, it would probably be Radiohead's OK Computer, because I think that that was such a revolutionary modern rock record in terms of the production that... You could just have a business card that just says, Mike Collision, I, I worked on OK Computer. <laughs> and that would, that would be it. I mean, you, you wouldn't have, you know. So that's definitely uh, it. Uh, and what was the second part again? And can you describe your process when you actually start mastering something for the first time? Sure. So, so like I said, I'll listen to a little bit of music and I'll put on the master. And usually I'll kind of just like hit broad stroke stuff. Like I'll listen to the first song, kind of do... Um, you know, I, like I said, that that uh, Hendy Amps EQ is kind of just four bands. Uh, I'll start adjusting that. I have another EQ called a Nif Soma, which is more of like a Sontech kind of style in the way that it's laid out. It's like a parametric EQ. Uh, so I'll start kind of like tweaking the overall stuff and skipping kind of from song to song and making these like very broad adjustments from one song to another. Then it usually goes into... Uh, you know, problem solving, and for that, I'll go back to the first song and I'll listen to it, and I'll I'll say, okay, what what's is there anything wrong? And sometimes there's nothing wrong, and that's awesome. And then if there is something wrong, it's like, well, what is the most efficient way, in the most simple way that I can fix this problem? And can I fix this problem in a way that makes it seem like it never existed? Uh, you know, there's there's always like, it's like if you have an SC vocal, you know, you can DS it, but can you DS it so it sounds like it was never SC and it doesn't have that like, um, you know, slurry thing on the S's and, you know, stuff like that. Like, how efficiently can I do this and just make it disappear, you know, make these problems disappear? I love that mentality. That's my approach kind of 
Yeah, I mean, it's thing. like it, 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 <laughs> if something has too much low end, I mean, you know, you can smash the low end and then it won't have a problem anymore, but it won't sound great. Can you do it in, you know, the most efficient way? Like one of my favorite things to do is, uh, like I said, if I'm DSing something and it's not necessarily a vocal, it could be a lead guitar. When this lead guitar comes in, it really just like takes my head off. Can I put the DSer on in a way that it doesn't even do a tenth of a decibel of reduction until that guitar part comes in? You know what I mean? That's kind of what I shoot for. I, I don't want to mess anything up. I just want to fix. And then after that, I mean, it's just more just listening and making these, you know, fine adjustments, and, you know, adding compression. I usually kind of add, if I'm going to do like any saturation or clipping, that kind of comes at the end. And then it's it's just kind of setting level. I mean, it's a gross simplification of the process, but that's essentially what it is. Awesome. Let's just take one more here. Uh, by the way, Dan Corneff says you are pretty damn good. <laughs> and we love Dan, so Dan Dan Corneff is is better than pretty damn good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he sends me this stuff, and I like I like I'll send him a message. It's like how how does a guitar even sound like that? How do you do that? It's like amazing. Danny Delta is asking: Is the art of mastering dying? Budgets are lower than ever and falling. Bands make zero money from selling music. Why pay an extra guy to get 5% better product if, in reality, consumers don't really care about the loudness? Uh, I would say to that, first off, I think it's a great mastering is much better than 5%. Um, I, th- I think it's like a 20% improvement, uh, maybe even more, depending on what you get. I think that if I, if I got a 5% improvement on a on thing that I was mastering, either I'm not having a good day or it's so good that that's all I want. The other thing is, I think that, and I kind of have two two points on this, is that first off, I don't think that mastering has to be as expensive as a lot of people think it has to be. Um, I think that, unfortunately, a lot of the really big mastering guys who are awesome um, and usually super nice guys, but I think that their whole setup was built on a different era in the music industry when there was a ton of money, you know, and you have these huge elaborate setups and these big mastering houses in places like New York City that it just costs $100 for a soda. And I don't think, I think that that is what can't keep going, kind of that setup. But I think that something that I see more and more, and it's it's kind of what I have is, I still have the gear, but I don't have this gigantic elaborate place so my overhead is a little bit lower and I definitely pass that along to my clients so I think that the that it the whole thing and and I think that you guys see it too I mean it happens in recording studios you know uh the hit factory closed and all these big studios have closed but people are still making great records and they're probably making records that sound just as good they're just not doing them in these gigantic elaborate studios and because of that they can uh, work with much better uh, or you know work much more affordably that's the first part the other thing is i think that since more people are recording at home it makes mastering even more important and if you're going to record your own record why not take the money that you're saving and invest in good mastering because you may not have such an ideal uh, listening environment that you could really benefit much more than that 5% from a guy sitting down in a room that he really knows with speakers that sound really good and just kind of making the final call. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. My pleasure. Yeah, Mike, you've been fascinating. I, I, I had a blast. 
This is so much fun. It, it's cool too because it's you know I never really sat down and thought about how I felt about a lot of these things. You know, so to to talk about it is is like pretty interesting. It's like, oh, how, you know, what's your approach? And I have to sit back and think like, well, wait a second, what is my approach? You know, it's been <laughs> so. It's it's like being instinctual up to this point, you know. I just sit down and start twisting knobs, but it's kind of interesting to like have to vocalize it, you know. Absolutely, it's a lot of fun. I've I've definitely had that same journey, being interviewed so many times and having to tell my story. It's kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of cool to like go go down memory lane. Sure, you, fi- <laughs> you figure out what your story actually is. You just you're too busy living it to really. And yeah, this is this is this has been my uh actually my first podcast, so it's a it's a blast. Awesome, awesome. Well, uh if people want to check you out online, uh believe oh man, I lost your website. What is it? It's rogueplanetmastering.com. Yeah, uh, check that out guys. Check out his discography and uh Maybe we can have you on here in the near future. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you so much and uh, have a good one. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Take care. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Balaguer Guitars. Founded in 2014, Balaguer Guitars strives to bring modern aesthetics and options to vintage-inspired designs. Go to balaguerguitars.com for more info. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Fishman, inspired performance technology. Fishman is dedicated to helping musicians of all styles achieve the truest sound possible wherever and whenever they plug in. Go to fishman.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, Visit nailthemix.com slash podcast and subscribe today.